0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me once again in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verses 20 through 50. We are uh, actually focusing in right now at verses 34 and following. 34 through 43. We have the uh, arrival of these Greeks earlier in the chapter. And then the declaration of the Lord in verse 27 that his soul has become troubled. And uh, his imperative, ordering God around, telling God the Father what to do. Father, glorify your name then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now, uh, that was not for the Lord's benefit, it was for the crowd's benefit, which we read in verse 30. This, uh, Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. They were a little bit clueless, they thought maybe it was thunder, maybe it was an angel, they weren't sure what they were listening to. But then this allows the Lord to teach a message, a message about the defeated adversary, a message about judgment upon this world, a message about um, the uh, blessings of being lifted up from the earth and drawing all men to myself in verse 32. He says, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself all right we got a good jump on this last week i want to return right to it here today so let's take a moment for silent prayer making sure that we are filled with the holy spirit and uh, preparing humbling our hearts for the authority of doctrine shall we pray most gracious heavenly father we thank you once again this day for the truth of your word Thank you for the early morning prayer time, for the training time with La Rosa, for the ladies prayer time. And now, Father, for this hour set before us, we ask for your blessing upon our time of study. Set aside distractions, Father, Hedge us about with your protection and use this day to glorify your son. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. All righty. You are following the outline. We are in the midst of main point two. Jesus responds to his soul trouble by engaging in a paterological prayer focus under which we have points A, B, C, and D. It was the message to the Gentiles that brought the uh, coming crucifixion into the undeniable soul trouble. Under point B, the Father's answer. Uh, He answered Jesus' prayer with an encouraging affirmation that Jesus could use to edify the confused crowd. And I've been... Chewing on that for the last couple of weeks, ever since we taught it, realizing how applicable this is in all kinds of circumstances. I mean, th- if you think about it, every answer to prayer is a teaching opportunity. You got, you know, whatever answer you receive today, you can use tomorrow to teach your children, to teach your friends, to teach anyone doctrine and principles and and, and uh, uh, the assurances of answered prayer and, and things of that nature. So um, this is not unique, certainly, to uh, to the Lord's circumstances. It may even be, you know, the opportunities and things you're praying for and uh, job searches and things of that nature. And as the father answers and he may answer uh, no on several occasions, in which case you've got the opportunity to use those answers to testify, to say, oh, father's faithful. Father's going to provide. And it becomes a, uh, a teaching opportunity. Thirdly, under point C, the message from the father and through the son communicated the eternal victory over sin. And uh, he says, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And this is the, the uh, urgency that the son has with respect to this. Uh, the, eter- the universal drawing unto life. There's an important principle. And we have some subpoints under this. Uh, how the father was satisfied and the ascension uh, as it relates to the angelic conflict. And then thirdly, the drawing of the son. And I hope you did the work to put this passage together with John 6:44, where the Father draws. And no one can come to Christ unless the Father who sent me draws him. But now this shows the, the role that the Son has in drawing. And when you understand that I and the Father are one, you understand it's not different from the Father's drawings, the Father and the Son that are drawing. But the, the Son gets to join the Father by virtue of his victory here at the cross. And that uh, there's a lot of doctrine that goes into that, and I hope that we... Can identify that he says, "I will draw all men to myself." It is a universal drawing. Don't confuse the universal drawing with some kind of false uh, universal salvation. You understand? Many are called, but few are chosen, and he can draw the whole world, but only those who uh, believe are uh, the ones that are going to receive eternal life. Which brings us now to the fourth subpoint under main point two, and this is point D: The crowd knew about an eternal Christ but they were deficient in their Son of Man understanding. And uh, this is where we uh, left off. The Lord was uh, trying to remedy this deficiency. The crowd knew about an eternal Christ, but was deficient in their Son of Man understanding. And I think a large part of which is because the, the term Son of Man and uh, the, the way in which that addresses Gentiles as well did not fit with their Uh, superiority attitudes pertaining to being jewish and being um, you know sons of abraham and sons of david but we'll outline that for you here in just a moment so um, we see in verse 34 the crowd then answered him we have heard we have heard okay out of the law which actually refers to the whole bible what we call today the old testament We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And it's almost insulting. It's almost disdainful the way they say that. And we do the same thing in English when we use uh, the the pronoun like this. Who is this Son of Man? Right? It almost becomes uh, insulting or at least at the very least it's challenging because they want to know what in the world this is that he's talking about. Who is this son of man? So the Lord's going to be patient with them and he's going to walk them through it. and He's going to tell them, he's going to answer their questions here. Uh, that they've only got a very little time left. Uh, Jesus says to them for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light. Notice that? Does he tell them who the son of man is? He does, but he does so with the terminology of light. Walk for a while while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. So they're deficient and he is being faithful to give them this salvation message. All right. Messianic expectations emphasize the glory and minimize the suffering. The messianic expectations. They knew all about the eternal Christ. They love that part. (laughs) Right. You know, um, you can expect it was very popular and and grew in popularity in particular, as long as their oppression at the hands of the various Gentiles continued to prolong and continued to linger. Um, They had these expectations. Interestingly enough, they understood the timetable in Daniel. They understood the sixty nine sevens. They knew that they were approaching the culmination of that calendar. It's uh, it's actually quite interesting to read through the uh, the rabbis after the first century into the second century to the third century and how they debated amongst themselves because they knew that they were already beyond any possible reach of, of the Daniel calendar. And so they then started to allegorize and explain away and kind of dismiss the significance of the book of Daniel. Uh, I also believe it 's when it 's what provoked them and caused them to remove Daniel out of their prophetic section and put Daniel over in the writings section of their uh, of their Tanakh, but be that as it may, these were their expectations, and isn 't that quite human the, We like the popular stuff we like the positive stuff, and then we pretend the the bad stuff 's not in there. As far as that goes. But the Lord's going to start with where they are. He's going to start with what they understand. He's going to start with what they've heard. Okay. And that's an appropriate method. We can do the same thing. When people come to us, they say, well, you know, we heard that, you know, whatever they've heard from whatever source. Start there. Say, okay, well, what do you know about this? All right. Well, let's build on that. What does the scripture say? Let me tell you some more about this. Considerations were given as to different messiahs fulfilling the suffering passages. And they had different titles. Uh, They called the suffering Messiah, they called him the Mashiach ben Yosef. And this is the one that God ignored. Uh, And then the second glorious Messiah was termed the uh, Mashiach ben David, the son of David. And that's the one they emphasized. This is the one that became popular. This is the one that became uh, really the only one that became known after, uh, after a period of time. And so, in order to reconcile the fact that there were passages that appeared to talk about a suffering Messiah, and there were passages that that obviously referred to a glorious reigning Messiah, uh, they were able to reconcile the both and by saying, okay, there must be two Messiahs. That's how they balanced it out. Uh, the alternative would be that there's only one Messiah, and he's going to come twice. Okay, they considered that and rejected that. Of course, now we know with hindsight that that was the the, the proper consideration that was the they should have gone with that had they been able to ahead of time. They would have been they would have been accurate. Now, um, I did not have the Bible software up and running last week. And so I was just going to read a selection out of Fruchtenbaum and then we'll advance and we'll make some new ground here today. This is from Arnold Fruchtenbaum's Messianic Bible study collection. And uh, I believe it's lesson 22. No, it's lesson 11 in his curriculum. And it is a study on the suffering Messiah Messiah of Isaiah 53. This Messianic Bible study will focus on the suffering Messiah of Isaiah 53. And this chapter will be uh, dealt with rather extensively because the proper interpretation is the major bone of contention between Jews who believe in Jesus or Yeshua and Jews who do not believe in him. The passage will be divided into five main sections. I'm only going to really read the first and Maybe a little bit out of the second. Um, The paradox, the source of the paradox, the text, clues to the interpretation of the text, and then the conclusion. I'm not going to take all the way through that. I'm just going to describe for you here the paradox and then the source of the paradox. Anyone who sets himself to the task of seeking to know what the Old Testament has to say about the coming of the Messiah soon finds himself involved with a seeming paradox. At times, one even seems to be faced with an outright contradiction. For the Jewish prophets gave a twofold picture of the Messiah who was to come. On the one hand, the inquirer will find numerous predictions regarding the Messiah, which portrays him as one going to suffer humiliation, physical harm, and, physical, and finally death in a violent manner. This death was stated by the Jewish prophets to be a substitutionary death for the sins of the Jewish people. On the other hand, he will find that the Jewish prophets also spoke of the Messiah coming as a conquering king who will destroy the enemies of Israel and set up a Messianic kingdom of peace and prosperity. And that's the paradox. That's the conundrum. And if you if you conclude that they contradict, then you got a problem because that means that God is wrong on either the one side or the other side, whichever way it goes, if they contradict. that's why it's not acceptable for anyone who accepts the truthfulness of God. God cannot lie. Therefore, there are no contradictions. And if there are apparent contradictions, we have to search and and rightly divide the word of truth and discover how those apparent contradictions actually reconcile to validate that, of course, both are true. That's a given in our uh, approach to the scriptures. There are no contradictions in the scriptures. So, um, thus, there is a twofold picture the Jewish prophets gave of the Messiah. For centuries past, during the formulation of the Talmud, Uh, the rabbis made serious studies of messianic prophecies and concluded that the prophets spoke of two different messiahs. And that was a conclusion that took a long time arriving. And in the midst of that, there were, of course, debates along the way. Uh, The messiah who was to come, suffer, and die was termed Mashiach ben Yosef, or Messiah the son of Joseph. The second messiah who would then come following the first was termed Mashiach ben David, or Messiah the son of David. This one would raise the first Messiah back to life and establish the Messianic kingdom of peace on earth. That the Old Testament presents two lines of Messianic prophecy was something that all the early rabbis recognized. The Old Testament never clearly states that there will be two Messiahs. In fact, many of the paradoxical descriptions are found side by side in the same passage. That's very important. In which it seems that only one person is meant. Nevertheless, for the early rabbis, the two Messiah theories seemed to be the best answer. For centuries, Orthodox Judaism held to the concept of two Messiahs. However, since the Talmudic period in the history of the Jewish people, which would be 4th uh, century to 10th century, thereabouts, um, Messiah Son of David alone was played up in the imaginations of Jewish hearts and minds. The other Messianic figure, the suffering one, was ignored. He was there in Jewish theology when needed to explain the suffering Messiah passages um, contained in the Old Testament for his existence provided an escape clause when thorny questions were raised. Um, Otherwise, this messianic figure was largely ignored. Today, few Jews have ever heard of Messiah, the son of Joseph, or know of his existence in Jewish theology of days gone by. Today, the Messiah that Jews know is Messiah, son of David, the conquering one. And then... As far as the source of this, and he goes on to describe the medieval rabbis that uh, that definitively left it uh, and, and left the Jews of today trapped in in uh, in only a partial understanding of who the promised Messiah was going to be. Uh, let's see. He quotes himself here, which is always allowed when you document it, and you wrote it. In a book I wrote several years ago called Jesus Was a Jew, I quoted source after source showing that the historical Jewish interpretation of Isaiah 53, that it speaks of Messiah, not of the nation. In fact, the first rabbi ever to interpret Isaiah 53 uh, speaking of the nation and not an individual was Rashi. And that's the the very dominant, powerful medieval Jewish rabbi and much of rabbinic Judaism today uh, owes itself to Rashi. Uh, In about 1100 AD, Uh, I might add that he was opposed in this interpretation by the majority of rabbis of his own day, interestingly enough, and they continued to oppose that interpretation for centuries after him. Historically speaking, it was not until the 1800s that the national interpretation of Isaiah 53, instead of the messianic interpretation, actually became the dominant view among the rabbis. Isn't that remarkable? The, the, his peers in his own day disputed him and for centuries afterwards and not until the 1800s, not until, I think, um, the the uh, spark of Zionism uh, started to really come alive in, in Jewry, you know, the Jewish people globally. And I think then that's when the, the Rashi interpretation of of Isaiah 53. See, they view this suffering Messiah as being an allegory, a metaphor, that it's, it simply references how poorly treated the Jewish people have been through the years. You know, and so they're abused and they're persecuted and they're, they're um, you know, the pogroms and different things against the Jewish people. So they allegorize Isaiah 53 applying to the mistreatment of the Jewish people. And that caught hold in the 1800s. And that's the view today, see. And so... Uh, Christians find it awkward trying to uh, give a gospel to Jewish people and they think, hey, Isaiah 53 is the perfect passage to give them. Unfortunately, it's the worst passage to give them if they've been saturated in in their own rabbinic Judaism uh, theology. They will not accept that as being messianic. So anyway, I wanted to bring that to you today. And uh, since I didn't have it available last week. All right. Now. Who is this Son of Man? Point three then. Let's spend some time with Son of Man. Son of Man was a subject central to Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And repeatedly in Ezekiel. Son of Man was a subject central to Daniel's and Ezekiel's revelations. For Daniel, it's Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And for Ezekiel, it's everywhere throughout the book. Ezekiel was referenced as Son of Man a total of 93 times in the book. 93 times Yahweh Elohim will speak to his prophet, Ezekiel, and call him Son of Man. And uh, this is uh, an important issue, one that we raised a number of times. We'll look at a few of the verses here. Uh, but I want to really spend the bulk of my time in, in Daniel 7 today. So briefly, Ezekiel chapter 2. And won't, we won't have to look at all 93 uses. <laughs> Just the first couple here will, will make the case. All right. It's important to keep in mind the distinctions between Daniel and Ezekiel were contemporaries. They, they, they ministered at the same time. Uh, they were both in the captivity. They both were taken to Babylon. All right. And uh, but there's a huge difference. Ezekiel was actually called to be a prophet to deliver the prophetic message to the people of Israel. In other words, he was commissioned to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord and and minister to the Jewish people and deliver the messages and and act out the dramas and and the other uh, pantomime type teaching that he did. Daniel was not sent to the Jewish people. He prophesied repeatedly. It's fair to call him a prophet by office, possibly, or you you can dispute that. But he prophesied so thoroughly, and yet he was never commanded to stand up and say anything to the Jewish people. He was never commanded to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. He never had a message to the Jewish people. Instead, he was placed in the political office and he was sent to Gentile kings. And he was commanded to record the prophecies. And he was commanded to seal up vision and prophecy until the end time. And it's it is a significant difference between them. It's almost like, you know, the the Peter and Paul contrast of, of that century. Right. Two different men with different ministries, one of the Jews, one of the Gentiles. Okay? And yet together, you know, forming an amazing tandem when it when it comes to the, the the preeminent apostles of the early church. Well, Daniel and Ezekiel, same thing. Peers, contemporaries, and yet one to the Jews, one of the Gentiles. Okay? And that's a consideration. Because when Jesus comes, his primary message is going to be to the Jews. Okay? So in that Daniel Ezekiel tandem I'm talking about Jesus is the Ezekiel. Okay, he's not he's not uh, he's not uh, sent to to Gentile kings. He's not sent to um, to function as a Daniel of his day. He's functioning as an Ezekiel of his day. And he is the son of man that Ezekiel is called all these times. So uh, Ezekiel, chapter two, you'll notice. He said to me, son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. He spoke to me in the spirit. As he spoke to me, the spirit entered me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. Then he said to me, son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this day, to this very day. I am sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children. And you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. I love this. This ought to be a part of every ordination message, I think. <laughs> OK, <coughs> it's not. It's not. It's, it's an urgency that Ezekiel has to stay faithful to the Lord because he won't be well received by his audience. Verse five: As for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words, though thistles and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Neither fear their words nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. Have I mentioned that yet? <laughs> Okay, you're catching the drift here on Ezekiel's call. But you, verse seven, shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are, in case you missed it, they are a rebellious house. They are rebellious. Verse eight. Now, you, son of man, listen to what I'm speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. Then I looked and behold, a hand was extended to me and lo, a scroll was in it. Now. This is the call of Ezekiel. Go back and read it again. And you can see the Father calling Jesus Christ for his earthly ministry. Right? Particularly when he says, open your mouth and eat what I'm giving you. And remember Jesus saying, my food is to do the will of my Father who sent me. I have food to eat that you do not know about. Right? And you talk about Son of Man being sent to a rebellious house. And Son of Man, do not fear what they're going to do to you. And Son of Man, whether they listen to you or not. And you can't, it's, the parallels, of course, are unmistakable. Now, this is simply the example. Like I say, it is 93 times throughout the book of Ezekiel. Every time Yahweh Elohim gets his attention or Adonai Yahweh, often one of the titles here in Ezekiel, uh, is getting the attention of Ezekiel. He calls him son of man, go and deliver this message. All right. And so we see that there. son of man was a subject central to Daniel and Ezekiel's Revelations. Now, for Daniel's part, Daniel chapter seven. Let's get over to Daniel chapter seven. Now, of all of all the prophets to uh, to grab the attention, it, they're not the pre-exilic prophets. They're not the post-exilic prophets. They are the two exilic prophets. The two prophets that were sent to Israel during the time that they were not in their land, the time that they were not enjoying the blessings of the land that belongs to them. All right. And consider the nature of Jesus Christ in ministering to Israel, the time in in which he ministered to Israel. okay, And you start to to put some of these things together. Now, Daniel chapter seven. This is going to be fun. I'm looking forward to get to go to Kiev next month and teach Daniel in Revelation again. So this is going to be a significant uh, element. Chapter seven is is chapter two all over again. Remember, chapter two talks about a statue, a statue with four parts, head to head to feet. OK, chapter seven is the same message, but it's not a statue. It's four beasts. Okay. and the four beasts match the four parts of the statue. So head of gold. Uh, chest of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron. You got the four beasts that we track through here in uh, in Daniel seven. Now the statue has ten toes, and uh, the beast has ten horns, and then uh, we got this little horn that we have to deal with. So uh, that's about a thirty second recap of what would take quite a bit of time here <laughs> in Daniel chapter seven. Um, but understand the. Um, Verse seven, 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 Daniel, seven, seven. Uh, After this, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth that matches the legs of iron in the statue from chapter two. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns while I was contemplating the horns. Behold, another horn, a little one came up from among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. All right. And uh, we've given you all the teaching on this, but just a few the the thumbnail to remind you, this is Antichrist that's in view here, the, the beast of Revelation, the man of lawlessness. Uh, he is the little horn that comes up and uproots three horns in his rise to prominence. So um, all the the exercises today in trying to identify who Antichrist is and if he's on Earth and who he might be and and all of that is fruitless because he's under restraint and he cannot be revealed until the restrainer is lifted, even if um, the church age actually remains on Earth in order to see the uh, the ten horns come into existence. If if the church remains on Earth to see the formation of eschatological Rome. It, we will not be on earth long enough to see the little horn come up and, and replace the three big horns. Okay? And I don't think we're even going to be here long enough to see the, the ten horns come into existence for that matter. Okay? We might. We were, the church was here to watch national Israel restored in their land. So it's conceivable that the church can see the, uh, the formation of, of eschatological Rome. But I do know, whichever way that works out, we won't see this little horn uproot the three horns because he cannot do so, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, until the restrainer is, uh, is removed. Now, uh, Daniel 7 has a lot of back and forth between what he sees on earth and what he sees in heaven. And so uh, we, we leave off the boasting mouth of Antichrist uh, on earth while the scene shifts to heaven. I kept looking until thrones were set up, plural, And the Ancient of Days took his seat. And this is a very mysterious text because uh, we have plural thrones and only one seated judge. So what are those empty thrones doing there? Why are those sitting there? It's left unclear in Daniel because it cannot be revealed in Daniel. It cannot be revealed until you understand in Revelation that all judgment has been given to the Son. And the multiple seats are for the Son and for his bride. And in Revelation chapter 20, when the thrones are set up for judgment, they are seated in Revelation chapter 20. Just, uh, what is that, verse 6 or so? Or, let me see. Give this to you just for a quick side trip on a side trip. Um, Verse 4, Revelation 20, verse 4. I saw thrones, again plural, and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. See, by the time you get to Revelation, now mystery doctrine is unfolded. Now we know about the church. Now we know about how all judgments been given to the Son. Now we know about how we are in the Son. Now we know about how we shall judge angels. We shall judge the world. We have all of the doctrine that comes from, the, uh, from Ephesians and from 1 Corinthians and from the places that we understand that we will reign with Christ. We will be seated with Christ. Now we can have it explained to us what these multiple thrones are all about. But in Daniel 7, thrones are set up and uh, no explanation is given as to why there are multiple thrones and why they're all empty except for the one here where Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, takes his seat. His vesture, back to Daniel now, his vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. his wheels were a burning fire. Uh, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Myriads upon myriads, or I'm sorry, thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Flash back to planet Earth. Okay? It's, 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 it's a powerful method of... of, of writing this to show the the back and forth, to show the connectedness between heaven and earth and the things that are happening in heaven that are being reflected on the earth and, and, and vice versa. Uh, it says it's a reality that we can appreciate particularly because we are a heavenly people. And the promises that Christ gave to his disciples that what you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and what you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And this connection between the heavenly realities and the earthly reflections uh, we can relate to as as we ourselves are a heavenly people. But we see this played out here in in Daniel 7. So the books were open. Back to earth again. I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking, and I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Then we get to our key verses here where Son of Man shows up. I kept looking in the night vision and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Okay, So understand that there's there's judgment in this passage and there's judgment on the on the horn. And now there's judgment on the sun. I kept looking in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Alright, so we have here presented prophetically in these visions um, the fact that God the Father is well pleased with the Son of Man. Okay, He's victorious, He's obedient, He's faithful, He's being bestowed all things. A name above every name that has been named. He's being bestowed his eternal kingdom. He's being bestowed. The, the kingdom is, is being given to Christ even while Antichrist is being cast down and rejected. Okay, Satan thought he could magnify his own little horn. He could magnify his own son. And he's going to have free reign for seven years. But he's going to be ruled against. And that's played out right here. All right. Which, by the way, is why at Armageddon, we read about it in Revelation chapter 19, Jesus comes and we're with him, but he lays hold of of Antichrist, the beast and the false prophet. He casts them directly into the lake of fire. They don't go to hell. They don't come out of hell to stand at the great white throne and then go to the lake of fire. In Revelation 19, they go straight to the lake of fire. They've already had their great white throne judgment and it's right here. The ancient of days has already ruled against the beast. He's already ruled against Satan's counterfeit plan for the uh, for the administration of the universe. So the uh, the Antichrist is ruled against and the son of man is ruled in favor. All right. So again, one like the son of man was coming. He was coming with the clouds. And he comes up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. I find it interesting because uh, of the way the Lord uses this passage, the way he uses references to the Son of Man. We're going to see those here shortly. He used them in ways that infuriated the Pharisees, infuriated the the Sadducees, um, not only by calling himself the Son of Man, but referencing coming on the clouds. Uh, referencing his return in judgment and uh, to reign and uh, they they picked up stones to kill him for being so blasphemous for claiming to be god see which for anybody else would be blasphemous but for god is true (laughs) right it's not blasphemy if it's true all right and there it is all right point four then let's look at some of those verses Am I hearing a popping noise? Any clues? No. It's not me. I thought it was somebody out here. Bob, is that you? Are you popping? All right. That's bizarre. All right. No one's going to admit it anyway, so we'll just... That's all right. It's grace. It's grace ministry. I just thought I was losing my mind. I still might be losing my mind, but at least we're sharing the same... Hallucination. You did? That computer. Okay, cool. Coming through the speakers? All right. I, I feel better. Point four. Son of man was frequently used by Christ concerning himself. Frequently. Uh, Matthew sixteen thirteen is only a single use, but it's, it's, a, it's a noteworthy one. And son of David was used by Christ in conflict with the Pharisees, and I want to look at those. We don't have to look at one; they're all in parallel with each other. Uh, so let's go to Matthew. That way we can get chapter sixteen, and then we can get chapter twenty-two. Um, but the son of David title, son of David was used by Christ in conflict with the Pharisees. Matthew twenty-two forty-one through forty-six, in parallel with Mark twelve thirty-five through thirty-seven and Luke twenty forty-one through forty-four. It's not necessary to see them all. But if we go to Matthew 16, we can see what I'm talking about here with reference to Son of Man. Matthew 16:13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? He doesn't ask who do the people say the son of David is or who do the people say the Messiah is or who do the people say um, that's not necessary. They've got a Christology. They've got a messiology. They've got a a an understanding of the son of David. But this son of man title, which he used repeatedly with reference to himself. He wants to know now what is the understanding of the population? What how are the people receiving that? What are they what are their thoughts concerning him in his ministry? So who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist. And others, Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So you understand how confused the people are, right? And, they, and they're still confused by the time that uh, that Jesus says, now judgment is upon this world. Now the rule of this world shall be cast out. And if I am lifted up, I will draw them into myself. And they're still confused. Well, we've heard that. The, the the Messiah is going to stay forever. And you say the Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is the Son of Man? See, who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, some say you're John the Baptist. That's an interesting theory, given that they, they had ministered side by side at one point. <laughs> And John the Baptist had baptized him in the River Jordan. So it's kind of hard that he would be John the Baptist. But, you know, it's a theory. And uh, some people, maybe they didn't know better, thought, well, hmm. Others say you're Elijah, because Malachi promised that Elijah was going to return. So maybe you're Elijah that returned. And still others, Jeremiah. Jeremiah has come back. Now, I have yet to discover any legends or traditions that allow for the return of Jeremiah. But for whatever reason, uh, maybe because Jeremiah was the most abused and mistreated Old Testament prophet, they figured that Jesus has to, maybe he's Jeremiah come back, or one of the prophets come back. But he said to him, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, Son of the living God. And so Peter and the disciples here were proper, and they, they were able to identify that Son of Man is Son of God. Son of Man is the Christ, okay? And that only, the only one eligible to be the Christ, the one and only Christ, would be one who is both Son of Man and Son of God. And Peter puts it all together right here, which is why he gets, uh, he gets praised for this. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of John, or son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So this was a very common title that he used, and the disciples understood it, but most of the crowd did not. Then the title, Son of David, is interesting, not because it was misunderstood. I think it was very well understood, and I think that's why they hated it so much. They knew what Son of David signified. They knew the throne he was entitled to. They knew his lineage. They could not dispute his lineage. The, the only thing they could do was, was cast aspersions at the, uh, the, the, the date on his parents' uh, wedding license. Right? <laughs> you know, they could say, well, we were not born of fornication. You know, uh, referencing the fact that Mary gave birth during the time of the engagement and not during the time of or not after a, uh, a proper Jewish wedding. Um, but let's go over to Matthew 22 now. Yeah, they couldn't doubt his lineage. They just wanted to criticize the, uh, the situation there. All right. And, of course, in their darkened mind, what else would they assume, right, that... Uh, She's pregnant and they, they're still engaged and they haven't been married yet. So there you go. In their carnal mind, there's only one conclusion to come to. But in Matthew 22, and we'll be here shortly because this is uh, coming up in the uh, Olivet Discourse, but uh, they're still still coming here prior to the cross. Matthew 22, 41 through 46. Um, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they, um, they've already been critical of son of man. Uh, they have to admit son of David. And now he's going to leave them even more stumped. Whose son is he? And so they said to him, well, oh, the son of David. So he says to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Is he an heir? Is he a descendant? Or is he a sovereign? Is he an authority? Is he Yahweh? Is he Lord? Because the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. That my Lord part there is David speaking. Yahweh said to my Lord, the son of David, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. And this is David's psalm in Psalm 110. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now, you and I can answer this. You and I can answer this because we understand the pre-incarnate Son of God. We understand God the Son before the world was, who is the Son of God and the Son of Man, the Christ, born of David according to the flesh. Now, here I go introducing the book of Romans again. (laughs) All right. But this is what Jesus is getting to with his Pharisees, and they cannot answer him. In fact, they don't dare answer him. Because if they start to, they come to conclusions they don't want to come to. And so they don't, because they don't want to. No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. This was kind of game over as far as the Pharisees were concerned. There is nothing left to debate, nothing left to discuss, nothing left to ask, nothing left to answer. All that's left is how soon we can kill this man. That's priority number one and priority number only. In the minds of the Pharisees, this guy has to die. And uh, it's pretty desperate on their part since uh, somebody else that we're happy to see dead wouldn't stay dead, and that was Lazarus, and, and then they figured we had to do something about him too. Okay, It's always remarkable, and I think it's the frustration of of uh, sin, the frustration of evil, the nature of our faithful God, that it's, it, it's interesting is that people that start resorting to sin and resorting to evil, resorting to lies and so forth, um, they always lead to more. In other words, it always takes a second, third, fourth, fifth lie to cover up for the first lie. Or it always takes more, um, you know, a second, third and fourth murder to to, to remove all the witnesses to the first murder. Right. Or it just takes more evil to try to disguise the initial evil that you were uh, embarrassed that might come to to being exposed but here we see the, uh, the use of Jesus of both the title Son of Man and the title Son of David and really how befuddled that it left the, uh, the Pharisees. And it's, it's, it's powerful. We'll, we'll spend more time on it when we get to this event. But keep in mind, these guys are not stupid. These guys are the most brilliant legal minds of their day. And they know the Scriptures. They may not know with a spiritual mindedness, but they know with a gnosis on a knowledge basis what the, uh, what the law says. Alright, point five. The need for faith in the Son of Man was the essence of Jesus' Gospel message unto eternal life. The need for faith in the Son of Man was the essence of Jesus' Gospel message unto eternal life. The Gospel is not faith in the Son of David. It's faith in the Son of Man. It was a title that He claimed for Himself more often than any other title. And it's the title that whereby faith must be placed. I'll say this again. It's not faith in the son of David that is the gospel message unto eternal life. It is faith in the son of man that is the gospel message unto eternal life. You say, well, what's the difference? Everything. Okay. Admittedly, both refer to the same person. But the distinction is, is vital because it is in the capacity as son of man that he's on the cross. It's not in his capacity as son of David that he's on the cross. It's in his capacity as Son of Man that he's on the cross. He's identifying with, the, with, with Adam. He's identifying with Adam's fallen race. If he goes to the cross as the Son of David, he's only providing redemption for the Davidic descendants. How crazy would that be as a concept? But he's on the throne as the Son of He's on the cross, I'm sorry, as the Son of Man. And it is faith in the Son of Man that's the essence of Jesus' gospel message unto eternal life. And we see this in John 3, in John 5, and John 12. And you understand, of course, because redemption is for humanity. It is for the realm of mankind. It is a salvation is from the Jews, but it is not exclusively for the Jews. You understand, it's for the whole world. And the, the Savior, the Redeemer, is born, uh, you know, according to the flesh of the uh, Jewish people. But his work benefits the entire human race. So in John 3, speaking with the ruler of the Jews here, Nicodemus, not only a Pharisee, but a, uh, an officer of, in their authority structure in the Sanhedrin. And um, in explaining to him how he must be born again, how he must be born of the Spirit, and how he must be born from above, He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And we understand what happened there in that episode in the wilderness. The serpents had bit them. They were dying because of the serpent bite. And yet the the standard could be raised up. And if you looked, you lived. Okay? Look and live. So, um, and it's as simple as that. Everyone who looked lived. Everyone who didn't look died. And that's the gospel message. Believe in Christ and you're alive. Reject the gospel of Jesus Christ and you're dead. And so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Not the Son of David. The Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. And this is the basis for delivering the, the verse we know so well in verse 16, that God so loved the world. But it's faith in the Son of Man. It's not the Son of David that goes to the cross. It's the Son of Man that goes to the cross. Over in um, chapter 5, John five twenty-five through 27. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. The Son of God, this is referencing after His work of the cross, after His ascension, after His ascension, he has resumed his privileges of deity. For just as the father has life in himself, even so he gave to the son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, not because he's the son of David, because he's the son of man. He's the son of man. And so do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And goes on to describe the resurrection of life and the resurrection of judgment. All right, so it's the Son of Man, the essence of the gospel message. John chapter 12, verses 35 and 36. Back to where we are in our message today. Who is this Son of Man? Well, he's the light. He's the light. He's not John the Baptist. John the Baptist came to bear witness concerning the light, but he was not the light. Who is the light? It's the Son of Man. God became flesh and dwelt among us. For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. And these things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. <laughs> I love that. I felt like doing that. you done with the Bible class, closing prayer, and then you just want to use the trap door they put in over here. All right. Now, think about it. What a, what a, what a perfect illustration. He says, I'm not going to be here long. Now, this is Tuesday, of the Passion Week. He's going to go to the cross on Friday. He says, I'm not going to be here long. And when he finishes giving that message, he disappears. <laughs> right? And so you can imagine they're talking to themselves or looking around saying, What what was he talking about? He said, I'm not going to be here long. (laughs) Where'd he go? (laughs) Right? What a vivid way to illustrate. Though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. They were not believing in him. He tells them, you've got to believe. While you have the light, believe in the light. So you may become something that you are not yet, something that you are not now, sons of light. Hmm. All right, the need for faith in the Son of Man. We proclaim the same gospel message. I hope no one uh, uses son of David terminology in their gospel approach. That would be, I mean, the Holy Spirit can work through the stupidest gospel message and still get people saved. I understand that. But uh, we ought to endeavor to not deliver a a, a faulty gospel message if we know better and we are trained not to do so. Um, Son of David relates to uh, earthly royalty in the, Nation of Israel and has no bearing on on uh, uh, the work of redemption on the cross, which he accomplished as the Son of Man. That's the message that we proclaim to this lost and dying world. Finally, the blindness of the crowd was pathetic, yet prophetic. The blindness of the crowd was pathetic, yet prophetic. Verses thirty-six through forty-three. And I say pathetic in its true sense that it is cause for passion pathos it is cause for sadness it is it is truly uh, uh, every unbeliever you encounter is a is, is pathetic is that it, it should spark a a compassionate um, sorrow on our part do we grieve that this this Person is in Adam and not yet in Christ, and here's the blindness of the crowd. So many signs before them. No wonder. I mean, I can just imagine when they stand at the great white throne, and all those miracles have been done in their midst. That's why um, Chorazin and Bethsaida. They were, you know, he rebuked them and and uh, mentioned that Sodom and Gomorrah are gonna. Comparatively speaking, they're all unbelievers, too, going to hell also. But uh, but they're going to uh, at least be able to point their finger at these people who saw the Christ, who saw the miracles. And uh, however, the layers of the lake of fire are organized uh, there. There is a there are distinctions of uh, of of, uh, of wrath that will last for all eternity. So though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. And and it caused him to weep. He would weep over Jerusalem. And how often I desire to gather you under my wings as a a hen gathers her chicks, yet you were not willing. And he wept over Jerusalem. And yet this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? Anybody? (laughs) Has anybody believed? You know, when the proportion is so small, it seems to our discouraged human relative minds that it's practically nobody. That's not fair because it's not nobody. There are those who believe. There's a remnant. There's a, it's not fair to say that there's nobody, but because it's so overwhelmingly the other direction, broad is the path that leads to destruction, wide is the gate, many there are that go there too, and narrow is the path that leads to light, uh, life. Because it's so overwhelmingly that direction, it seems like it's practically nobody getting saved. So, who has believed our report? Anybody? Is anybody there? <laughs> to whom has the armor of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and He hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted. And I heal them. And this is a particular focus on this generation that hated him and that crucified him. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. And yet, what do we see? Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. We know of two by name. We know Nicodemus and we know Joseph of Arimathea. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, not publicly, for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. They accept him as the Messiah. They believe in him. They receive eternal life. And yet their pre-salvation legalism and pride is going to handcuff them in their babyhood, in their salvation. And that's pretty sad. I wonder though, do ever do you ever ponder, folks who uh, I'm talking, I'm working with a man now that was a lifelong I and mean, grew up Catholic, and uh, he's just now starting to be to understand what the gift of eternal life is all about, and it's not the it's not the Virgin Queen of Heaven that's going to get him into heaven, and and uh, and yet, if uh, you know today is the day or tomorrow is the day, at whatever point that he does come into relationship with christ um, how much of this other baggage pre-salvation is going to follow him and things are going to have to be unlearned things are going to have to be relearned things are going to have to be transformed Uh, the lord wasn't kidding around when he told the pharisees that they make their disciples twice as much a son of hell as themselves that's what legalism does. Religious legalism is enslaving. And so, um, anyway, I pray hard because uh, I may have another shot. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, it's an opportunity. Many of the, uh, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. They're not going to speak up. They're not going to speak up. They're not going to speak at his defense. Only one, only Nicodemus will stand up and say, well, we haven't got his testimony yet uh, during the middle of the night of his illegal trial. And then Joseph doesn't even speak up until after he's dead. And he says, um, excuse me, can I uh, can I bury him? <laughs> okay. And that's it. That is the only two that spoke up. The only two that spoke up. So, uh, Doug, someone there you can help. All right, I am out of time. It is 11 o'clock, so uh, we'll have to wrap it up here. The blindness of the crowd was pathetic, yet prophetic. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. Thank you for the example of our Savior. And Father, uh, I do pray that we might learn the lessons of this message and be able to relate it ourselves and our own evangelism endeavors. And Father, I just thank you for the awesome provision you made, not only to the Jews, but through the Jews and from the Jews to uh, even, a, even a Gentile dog like me, Father. And I thank you for that. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.